0: All right, so let's go ahead and set up this whole series, shall we? How many of you have seen the movie Elf? All right. Those of you who haven't, I think you're in for a real treat. And we just want to sh- start off by saying that the series is called Elf, Out of Place. Can anybody relate? Out of place. You just feel out of place sometimes. Yes, I do. Absolutely. A lot. Well, in this clip that we're about ready to view, prior to this, Santa Claus goes and delivers packages to the orphanage. And one of the babies climbs out of his crib and he climbs into Santa's sack. Well, Santa gets back to the workshop and realizes, oh my goodness, I have an extra person here. And that person grows up and comes to find out he's not an elf, he's human. And so since humans are much bigger than elves, he finds himself pretty much out of place. And so we're going to catch the movie where he begins to realize, I don't fit here. Let's watch. (laughs) All right. Well, in the movie, he discovers that I'm not an elf. Shocker. Right? And he begins to have all of these emotions and all of these feelings and suddenly he realizes that he's out of place, that he doesn't belong anywhere or certainly not where he is. And all of us, like Buddy, at some point come to a point in our lives where we realize, I'm out of place, I don't fit in. The theological term for that is what we as ministers would call the age of accountability, where you realize that, wait a minute, I have sinned against God. I was designed to be in relationship with God, but I'm living in this world where I really don't belong, that I I don't seem to fit, that something's not okay with, with me, and something's not okay with the world that I'm living in. And for some of us, it, it might be that we grew up in church and then we left the church and we realized that mom and dad or grandma and grandpa were right and we need to get back into church. It, it might be that some of us had to be imprisoned before we realized we had to come to Christ. Whatever that point is, all of us reach that point like Buddy where we're like, oh my gosh, I, I don't belong here. The, the, the life, there's more to life than this. There's something more. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, He says, but your misdeeds have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that you aren't heard. And so what happens? Well, they can't really overlook Buddy. They can't overlook his size. They can't overlook the fact that he can't make toys, right? They can't overlook these things. It's just constantly there in front of them. And so even though he sings with the choir and brings them down a whole octave, at some point we all realize that life is just not what it's supposed to be. Something's, something's missing. Something doesn't fit. And, and no matter what Buddy does, it's never quite good enough. It's never quite enough. And the same is true for all of us. That No matter what we try to do, it's never good enough. You know, we went tree shopping on Black Friday. We went tree shopping Black Friday morning. And there's always, every year, there's this argument with my wife and I and with the boys about which tree is the right tree. And it's supposed to be fun. And it turns out it's not so much. Right? And so we we go to a place in Pendleton to get the tree, and we're all excited, and we're smiling, and it's joyous, and we're singing Christmas songs, and usually it's the chipmunks that we're singing, and we're all excited, and my boys are shaking their head, no, but there'll be a dad someday. That's okay, and that attitude shifts on the way home because well this tree's got a hole right here and here and that wasn't the tree I picked and this tree's a mess and I don't know why we got this tree because that tree over there was a better tree and so what happens we realize that inherently it's not right something's wrong it's, it, it, it doesn't fit it, it doesn't work and yet this year was the first year we were in and out in 15 minutes it was like Boom. And everybody agreed on the same tree. So I don't know if they just got a bad crop of trees and they only had one good one and we got it or what. But you inherently just kind of know, right? You, you inherently know what works and what doesn't. And we tend to think that about God. We, we, we say, well, God's forgiving and God's gracious and he'll just overlook it. And yet the Bible tells us differently. That no matter how much he tries to overlook it or may want to overlook it, just like Buddy with the elves, no matter how much we try to overlook it, guess what? There he is, right? Oversized, out of place. And no matter how we try to overlook our feelings of of not being accepted and being out of place, and no matter how much we try to overlook it, no no matter how much we ask God to overlook it, it's still there. It's still there. In fact, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13 says this about God. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. He's like, I can't look at it. I I won't tolerate sin. I won't tolerate wrongdoing in my presence. I won't. That's not okay. That's not acceptable. And inherently, we know that. And so at some point, everyone realizes we're out of place. And yet I have this longing and this desire to be connected to something bigger than myself and something greater than myself. And yet nothing, nothing that I do will fix that or, or solve that. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He goes, when I have a desire that nothing in this world will satisfy, the next logical explanation is, I must have been made for another world. And that's true of everybody in this room. We all have a longing that nothing in this world can satisfy. And so the result is, we have to pull back and go, wait a minute, if nothing in this world will satisfy my desire, it must mean then, logically, I'm probably designed for another world and so we begin our search. We begin our look. Hey, it reminds me of this time when Lynn and I, when we were first married and we had some friends at the time and they invited us over for dinner. And so we go, we go over to our friend's house and we get in there and we're talking and we're waiting for them to get the food prepared and get the food done. And he goes, hey, because he are you okay if I let... And I don't remember, I don't remember the, his dog, the dogs, and you'll understand why I'm doing this in a minute. He goes, I don't he goes, I don't, he goes, are you okay if I let the dog in? I'm like, yeah, sure. In walks this massive, I mean massive canine. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, that's not a dog. That's not any dog I've ever seen. He goes, oh, this is, I'll give it a name. This is Fido. He's our timber wolf. What? Okay, listen, that steak I just asked you to cook for me that was rare, you need to char that thing, right? I want no blood on my plate. And they had a, they had a 100% purebred timber wolf as a pet. And, I'm, and he goes, okay, well, let's sit down and eat. And I'm going, "Mmm, mm-mm, <laughs> right? He's like, All right, well, here's your, here's your steak. You ordered yours rare, and for once in my life, I wanted my steak like my wives. Charcoal, burnt, like you lick the grill. You know, that's what it tastes like. And so, and I cut my steak and blood comes out of it. And I'm just, and this timber wolf comes up as I'm sitting at the table and puts his head on my lap. Like, are you going to feed me? And I'm thinking, yes, I probably will. And it won't be my steak, it'll be me. I'll be feeding you my arm or my leg or something. It was out of place. It just wasn't right. I couldn't enjoy myself. I mean, they were great, wonderful people. I really wanted to enjoy my stay, and I couldn't because I said, okay, well, that's fine. Let your dog in. And I thought, you know, it might be like, I knew it was an outdoor dog, so I was thinking like it might be a St. Bernard or it might be like a Rottweiler or a Doberman or it might be some sort of big outdoor No, it was a full-blooded timber wolf with its head on my lap while I'm cutting my rare steak. I'm not okay with this. Is, is anybody else, Would anybody else be okay with this? Or am I just abnormal? Yeah, nobody raised your hands. Because all of you know that's okay. That's not right. Well, obviously, I lived to tell about it. I did get maimed. I petted him and played with him. And it was just, you ever had that moment where you're like, am I at the Adams Family House? Like, that's what I thought. I was like waiting for something to happen, but nothing ever did. And I just wonder, what's going through the mind of this wolf as he's sitting there waiting for me to like feed it or, or something? And, and is he like, I don't belong here, but I'm a part of the family? And is he looking around like, you don't look like me, but I'm in the den, and so I'm accept. I don't know. I don't know what's going through this wolf's mind, Right? And I don't know how they got it. They said, well, we raised him from a pup. And, you know, like, I've heard the story about the wolves raising the boy, but I've never heard about the boy raising the wolf. This is all new. And I wonder just what's going through this wolf's mind. You know, I, I just wonder, like, what's happening here? What's, what's going on? Something's, something's out of place. And we find this in, in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 17, we find this exact same thing happening, where it's out of place, where something isn't right. Where Paul goes to Athens, and on his journey, he, as he goes into Athens, he's walking through the temple. Now, not, they, the Athenians didn't want to offend any particular religious group. They didn't want to offend anybody. And so because they did not want to offend anybody, they had gods set up for every religion and every, every thought. So, right? So they had Mercury and Dionysus and they had all of these Zeus and they, they had all of these different gods and idols to all of these different gods. Just, just in case, just in case we've offended a god, we have an idol to an unknown god. So if there's a God out there we've missed, we just want to make sure we cover our basis. And so this is his. This is where he belongs, and this is his place. Right? And so we don't want to offend anybody. Let's just make sure we've got this right here. And so as the, Paul goes into the Pegasus it's called the Areopagus, and he goes in, and it's this big auditorium with all of these gods on display and on the walls. What happens in this auditorium is that they debate. And they debate philosophy, and they they debate culture, and they they have these great debates. And so Paul walks in, and as he's walking through, he happens to look over, and he sees to the unknown God, to the God that doesn't have a name, the just-in-case-we-forgot-dog, or God. Well, that was backwards, wasn't it? Literally. So he looks over, and he sees this, and he's like, that's my God. Because there's no idol to Jesus. There's no, there's no idol, there's no place for Jesus. So Paul says, I'm going to tell them about that God. I'm going to tell them about that one. And so he does. But what are they debating here? When he walks in, they're debating two, two thoughts of philosophy. And I'm just going to touch on this because this is not philosophy. This is, you're going to get just like a drop of philosophy 101. Are we okay with that? Hold with me just for a minute. There were, they were debating two thoughts of philosophy. The first was the Epicurean. And you can read your Bible, read Acts 17. It says that the Epicureans and the Stoics were there debating. The Epicurean philosophy, the, the Epicurean thought of philosophy, if you take philosophy, you'll, you'll study this and you'll probably have it on a test. But their, their philosophical thought was that life is about seeking pleasure. Their thought was life is about the pursuit of happiness and being happy. And so what I want to do to be happy is I want, to, I want to minimalize everything in my life that I can so that I have enough money to go have all of the wonderful experiences that I can possibly have. And I can travel and I can enjoy and, and be happy. If you're watching HGTV, these people are buying the mini houses, the micro houses, the... why are you staring at me for like you've never watched HGTV You've never seen the person that has the bed right next to the kitchen in this mini house of like, it only has like 500 square feet? Nobody? Yes? Okay. Okay, yes, yes. I've got two people, three. All right. Can I get four, five, six? Okay. I'm not an auctioneer, but let's go. Right? I mean, these are the Epicureans. I, I, want, I want my friends to, To. I only want so many friends Because I don't want to create a bunch of problems in my life and I don't want to deal with a bunch of issues. So I don't I want to keep my friends close. I want to make sure all my friends think like I think, and I wanna I wanna minimize everything that I can so that I can go out and have all these experiences and chase happiness and not have to be concerned with anything else. I just want to chase happiness. That's the Epicurean philosophy. The pursuit of happiness, to be happy, to pursue happiness at whatever the cost. Now, on the other side of that are the Stoics. And the Stoics believe that in order to find true happiness, true happiness is not necessarily found in pleasure, true happiness is found in morality, and keeping law, and virtue, and in the intellect. And so, it doesn't really matter how big my house is, that's just a part of this world. It doesn't really matter how many shoes I have in my closet, that's just a part of this world. What really matters is how intellectually smart I am and how well I can keep the rules and the laws, and so on. And so when Paul walks into the Arapagus in Athens... He has the Epicureans are arguing that, no, life is short, and you've got to make yourself happy and just do whatever makes you happy. And you've got the Stoics arguing, no, it's important to be happy as you must be intellectual and and hold on to virtues and, and keep the law and do the right thing. And so you have one thought that's based on works, and you have another thought that's based on pleasure. And they're arguing, and they're philosophizing, and they're having this debate. And Paul walks in, and he goes, guys, gals. It's not about either of those schools of thought. Both of those schools of thought are off. Completely off. He goes, can I talk to you about the unknown God? Can I tell you about the God that you don't have listed here? Can I tell you about the God that you don't want to offend? And so he begins to explain. The Bible says that he begins to explain and debate starting back in Genesis and working his way through, and he, in Acts 17, you can read all of this, and then he says, now why? He says, why did God allow man to feel out of place? Why did God allow mankind to, and every single human to ever be born, feel like things just aren't good enough, and they have to get better, and, and something's wrong? And then he gives this answer to his own question in Acts 17, 27 through 28. God did this, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us for in him we live and move and have our being and some of your own poets have said we are his offspring now I don't want to get into the Greek mythology when he says some of your own poets have said we are his offspring he's, he's a, it's a direct reference to Greek mythology and how Greek mythology believes that he, the human race came about he says, but simply that, he goes, your own poets have even said, we are God's children. And so the reason that he allows you to feel like you're out of place and the reason he allows you to feel like you don't belong and something's not right is so that you'll begin to search for him. You'll begin to search for an answer and try to find an answer. As we're going to see in the coming weeks, Buddy begins to seek out and begins to search for his father and search for an answer for things that's natural. In fact, he says in the Greek, reach out for him literally means to touch or to handle, to ascertain the existence, the qualities, and the characteristics. It means to reach out, to touch, and to experience the characteristics and the qualities of someone. And so when Paul says when you search for God, you can literally reach out and touch his characteristics and, and touch his qualities, and you can see them, and you can sense them, and you can know them. The book of Romans says that that no one is without an excuse for not believing in God because even nature itself proclaims God, that God exists. I don't know if you've ever gone out to nature, stood maybe at a waterfall and just experienced the overwhelming feeling of of a waterfall or hiked at night and just out in the middle of nowhere and just seen stars. And the beauty of nature itself proclaims that there's a God. And Paul says, you can reach out and touch that. You can experience the beauty and the wonder of God. And he goes on in that verse, and he says, and find him. Not only can you reach out and experience God through the things that he's created and and, and get a sense of who he is and what he's like, but you can find him. You can find proof of his existence. You You can experience God. I love Barnes' notes on the New Testament on this passage. Barnes writes, that they may seek for God and find him from his creatures. God's like, I I haven't left you without an excuse. You can look out and find me. You can look out like Buddy the Elf. He can look out and realize, okay, something's not right. I know I don't fit here. There's something inside of me that's crying out for more. What is it? Where is it? And to go find that. Why do we feel displaced? Why do we feel out of sorts? Paul says so that it's, we can reach out and try to begin to search for God. To search for him. I want to share with you in closing, I want to share with you a story of someone. Now, you're going to know who I'm talking about as soon as you hear this piece. But you got that music lined up? He wrote this phenomenal piece. Listen to this. Alleluia, 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 alleluia. Is that familiar to anybody? All right, who can tell me? Who can tell me? Lynn and I, when, once they announced, I now present to you, Mr. and Mrs. Tyson Priest. This is what they played. It was awesome. But anyway, what? Um, well, who? Who wrote this? Handel. Right? Okay, well, let me tell you something about Handel. Let me give you a little story about Handel, who wrote Messiah. Handel was an amazing composer, and he began to write Italian operas. And as he began to write Italian operas, he also dabbled in sacred music. And he began to write sacred or religious music, and he also wrote operas. Well, the Catholic Church wasn't fond of that. In fact, the Catholic Church said, you must stop writing dirty secular music. Now, we laugh, right, because we're like, really? That's dirty? Right? But he would write secular operas and sacred music. And the Catholic Church began to wag their finger at him and said, you can't do that. You must pick one or the other. And so, over time, because of the pressure, Handel said, that's it, I'm leaving Germany, and I'm moving to England, and so because of the pressure from the Catholic Church, he left Germany, and he moved to England. In 1727, he became a citizen, but something happened when he moved to England. His work wasn't recognized. People didn't care about his work. People didn't want to listen to his music. People didn't want to attend his operas. He began to spiral out of control, and in fact, Handel wasn't even recognized as a composer. And in 1737, he, he suffers a stroke. He has blurred vision. He's paralyzed in his right arm and right hand. As a result, Handel becomes broke, depressed, spirals into debt. His life becomes miserable. He becomes miserable. And so, in his struggles with his finances, in his struggle with his emotions and his depression, and again, why would God allow this? It's so that he can begin to search for God and begin to find God. So he finds Jesus. And in 1741, he writes Messiah, 1741. What happens nearly 30 years later? On this side of the planet, we declare our independence from England, 1776, just to kind of put all this in time. So he's in England at this time, and he finds Christ. Well, he begins to write. His attendant hears something going on in his room, and his attendant, who helps him because he's had a stroke and he's, he's paralyzed he has blurred vision, Knocks on his door, and he can't figure out what's going on in Handel's room. And so Handel doesn't answer. And so he opens the door, and he walks in, and there's Handel on the floor in tears. And I want to quote what Handel said word for word. This is what Handel told his attendant. I did think that I saw heaven open, and I saw the very face of God. And with that, he got up and penned the Hallelujah Chorus. He told his attendant, I think I have seen the face of God, and I think I have been to heaven, and I have seen God himself. I have to pen what I've heard. And he begins to write. In the best way that human music and earthly music can describe, he begins to write. Now, Messiah first premiered in 17, or 1842, I'm sorry, 1742, it first premiered, and John Wesley says, if you're familiar with John Wesley, the great pastor, he says, there were some parts that were affecting, but I doubt it has any staying power. This is why pastors shouldn't dabble in music, right? He says, it had some moving parts, but I really don't think that this song has any staying power. But when the song was played, when Messiah was played for King George, yes, the same King George was a part of the American Revolution and fought us, he heard it, and when he heard it, he began to throw all of his resources behind it and said, the kingdom has to hear this. And once while he was attending a performance of Messiah, When the hallelujah chorus struck, the king stands up. Well, if you're in a room with the king and the king stands up, you stand up. You don't sit when the king stands. And so everybody in the room began to stand. And King George begins to worship during the hallelujah chorus. And to this day, when Messiah is played and the hallelujah chorus hits, and if there are British royalty in the room and present, they stand. And everybody else stands with British royalty when Messiah is played. Now, why do you stand? Why does royalty stand? Because they acknowledge that there is another. I am but a king, but there is the king of kings and i stand in his presence it's the same reason that when the president walks in regardless of political party when the president walks in you stand it's about respect it's about honor it's saying you have the authority and so when messiah hits and british royalty stands they say you have the authority you are the king of kings not me And handle in his displacement and feeling out of place. Like Buddy the Elf, he says, I've got to come to Christ. I've got to come to myself. And when he did, God, I believe personally, God permitted him to peer into heaven and to hear heaven. And he pens the Hallelujah Chorus. This morning, I want to invite you, as we go ahead and stand. Go ahead and stand. If you're here this morning... And maybe you feel out of place. Maybe you don't feel like you've connected with God, that you there's something missing. I want to invite you to come forward. As we close out in song, in the last few verses, I want to invite you to come forward. I want to invite uh, Lynn and Amy to come up here. And uh, if I can uh, get... Steve and Bonnie to come down on this side and if you're here this morning and maybe you're struggling maybe you're out of place maybe you feel out of place like man I just need God I just need a connection to the Holy Spirit and that's you I want to invite you to come forward as we get to sing and lift up God in these closing moments would you pray with me? Heavenly Father and I thank you for your presence in this place I thank you for your love, your mercy, your joy. I thank you that, God, we can not be out of place, but we can be connected to you. Now, Lord, even though we look around us and we feel like we're a misfit and we feel like we don't fit, we fit in your kingdom. We have a place in your kingdom. Lord, today, let us experience that. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.